Hi, I'm Roy Collin, and I'm the creator of the podcast. You can find everything about me and the five podcasts on bio.link forward slash podcaster, and you'll find it in the QR code there. I'd also like to thank my sponsors. If you or someone you know is struggling with anxiety and want to know how to be 100% anxiety free in six weeks without therapy or drugs, Daniel Packard Anxiety Solution Program Company offers a six weeks system that permanently solves anxiety at an astounding 90% success rate. People who join the program only pay at the end once they have clear, measurable results. If you're interested in learning more, go to permanentanxietysolutions.com where you can book a free consultation with Daniel. Do you have high blood pressure or want to get off the meds? Doctors are amazed at what Zona Plus can do. Get a $50 discount with my code ROY. Go to zona.com slash discount slash ROY and you'll see the QR code for all my sponsors down at the end. Quality Polish manufacturer of metal products for telecommunication and workshop equipment and other metals. If you'd like a brochure, you see it in the QR code and you just let us know if you would like a quotation shipped internationally and very competitive rates. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. My guest today in California in the US, mental health advocate, keynote speaker, psychiatrist. He's the founder of True Voice Mastermind and Welcome to Humanity. He's also a podcaster, which I love, of The Healthy Healer. Please welcome Dr. Fred Moss. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here, Roy. Really beautiful. Thanks for having me as a guest. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, I mean, I've mentioned, obviously, you're doing a lot, but you might just let the listeners know a bit about, about you. Yeah, sure. So, who I am, I like to introduce myself often as a um, a recovering, retiring psychiatrist. So, I have been in the mental health field for over 40 years, and I have been a psychiatrist for over 30 years. And part of what I do is I often call myself the undoctor. This is a moniker I picked up from my friends because I have learned over time that at the heart of all healing is communication, a lot like we're doing now. Conversation, communication, and connection is what creates healing in people. And it's way more effective than anything that modern technology has created inside of modern medicine. So, you know, as a psychiatrist, I had been typecast into being a diagnostician and then a psychopharmacologist. When you ask people, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist, for instance, almost everybody will say, oh, a psychiatrist is the one who prescribes medicine. And although I went to school to be a psychiatrist, I did not go to school to be a medicine prescriber. I went to school in order to bring communication, connection, and uh, conversation to the heart of healing. As I grew up in a family that was really in chaos and disarray when I was born, my job was to bring communication to that family, to bring connection, bring joy and love. And I was told that I did very well with that when I was a young child. And then when I started school and not so far, not so uh, long after, you know, after being two, three, four years old, I became very enchanted with the whole idea of communication. I would watch my two older brothers and my parents communicate with each other and think that someday I wanted to do that. And although I learned how to speak very well when I was in elementary school, I mean, for instance, there's no elementary school teacher who forgot having Fred as a student. I'm pretty sure about that. So I spoke often inside of the elementary school classes, but it wasn't a place that was encouraging communication. So I hoped that I would learn it in school, but it isn't where it happened. I expected maybe in junior high and then in high school. And of course, it got worse at every level. Eventually, I went to college and learned in the city of Ann Arbor. I learned how to communicate, but I didn't learn how to communicate in the school at University of Michigan. So I dropped out of school because it wasn't working for me. And I went to California, not so far to where I am now, in order to find myself. I took a bus ride all the way over here. And I did find myself that summer, but it wasn't sustainable. I eventually went back to learn how to, um, I tried school one more time in in a new area that was being developed. The area was called computers. And the only computer in all of Michigan was at the University of Michigan. So I went back to the University of Michigan and tried a second time and that didn't work. And eventually dropped out again. 
And it was there, Roy, that I got a application. My mom said I had to get a job because that's what moms say, you know. And so she got me an application to become a child care worker at a state hospital for adolescent boys. And for there, I was finally being paid to communicate, to, you know, have conversation, to connect with these kids who were only a little bit younger than me. And we were all healing. I was healing. They were healing. Other people were healing inside of these conversations. It was a splendid job. I loved it dearly, except the thing I didn't like about it was psychiatry. Psychiatry was already starting to be a medication field. And when we called the psychiatrist for any trouble we were having on the unit, they'd come down and they would talk to the child for like two or three seconds and then talk to us for like seven seconds. And then they would go into the chart and write something. And we'd have to go retrieve the child and hold them down in the quiet room, you know, and pull down his sweat drawers a little bit so we could expose his hip and then, you know, inject him with some adult grade cocktail of some antipsychotic medication. I found that to be so barbaric and heinous and unacceptable that I decided I would do something about it by going into the field and bringing communication back to the center of mental health where it belongs. And that's what I did. I went to school a third time, finished off my degree and eventually went to medical school, eventually became a psychiatrist and was in the regular mix of psychiatry for a long time because that was what was called for. In other words, diagnosing people and medicating people had become a thing when I came out of school, a real thing. Prozac had been introduced to the world, and psychiatry was now the medicating system, the industry that medicated people. I had sunken costs, and each and every prescription I wrote, and Roy, I wrote over 100,000 prescriptions, and I was in at least 30 or 40,000 charts during my time where I signed off on uh, patients that I had seen. Um, I didn't like writing medicine, but that was what was called for. So there was soul sacrifice and duplicity in my life. Eventually, I had to, you know, really negotiate that and, um, uh, you know, really work to, um, you know, really work to clean that up. And that's how I eventually got to the idea that communication, you know, I had to reconcile it. And, and by, you know, 2016 um, or by 2006, I began to take people off of medicine altogether and watch what happened. I took my low risk patients off of medicine. And sure enough, they got better, reliably better, way better, way better. In many cases, their diagnosis entirely disappeared. And so I learned something that maybe these medicines weren't doing what they said they were doing. Maybe they were actually causing the symptoms they marketed to treat. And this was, this was a big deal of corruption to actually pick up if that was true. And I learned over time that I really think that is true, that the medicines are really designed to perpetuate the symptoms they're marketed to deal with, if not advance the symptoms, and in some cases actually cause the symptoms they're marketed to treat. I wanted to shake everybody and tell everybody that when I learned it, but the industry wasn't ready to hear from me, and being violent about what you have to say doesn't always work. I've seen some of the people that you've interviewed on this show, and they've learned how to calm themselves down, even though they have really big things to say whether it's Tenpenny or Willis or Ike or those people that you've had contact with, they've learned how to really slow, slow down their act and say it so that it can be heard by the general masses. I too had to go through that phase where I could speak honestly about what I'm saying here in the world of mental health and in the world of the treatment and the diagnosis actually working to perpetuate itself rather than cause any cure. And this is where I'm at now. And that's what created Welcome to Humanity. And that's what eventually created The Undoctor. And that's what created me now as a communicator, as a podcaster, as a keynote speaker, as a teacher, as a facilitator, someone who's written a couple books. Find Your True Voice is one of my books. And The Creative Eight, Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression. And in both of those books, we do the same thing, which is we look at communication, conversation, you know, human connection as a source of all healing. And we start to see that that's what's missing in the world and probably what's being mistaken for mental health uh, issues, mental illness, more often than not. Maybe there isn't such thing really as a baseline mental illness. And this is the stand that I'm taking these days, actually getting that it's time to transform the narrative of this very stale concept of mental illness, the way it's designed over the last you know, couple decades 
and start really making a difference in humanity by promoting deep and honest, total, genuine, authentic connection between people as a way of healing. And that's where I am, right? Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And when you're <clears throat> talking to kind of fellow doctors and, yeah. you know, like you, you mentioned, you know, the people maybe on Prozac or whatever, but you started off on a certain level and they were cured. Like, can other doctors, is it more of the kickback system or just protecting themselves that they don't want to get on board? Because, like, obviously I've spoken to a few doctors that are doing this, but it's tiny. And, yeah, I mean, when you talk to people, it's it's kind of like, I don't know, they just kind of turn around and walk away as if it's not happening when we know, like, that you can prove it. It's not that we think. It's like you can prove this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know if they're protecting themselves. Look, we were taught a certain way. These are good people. Doctors, you know, tend to be very good people. That's how they got into medical school. They convinced people that they were good people and they were out to heal and out to make a difference, a positive difference in the world and projected themselves and promoted themselves as somebody who cared about humanity. And these same people are the ones who are still doctors. So I don't want to put down my colleagues in any way, for, you know, by diminishing the impact that they could or should be making. On the other hand, if they honestly looked at what's happening here, they could easily see that the medications are not really curing anybody. They're not healing anybody, but they're not promoted to heal. You know, they're actually promoted to just contain the symptoms or slow down the deterioration when in fact cure and healing is what's available. And it can be made available by removing these medicines and removing the notion of a diagnosis. Now, this is a very important piece, Roy. If you just remove the medicines and you leave the client there believing that there's still something wrong with them, then all they're going to want to do is replace the medicine with a different medicine because they think that something's wrong with them. So the key to this, and I've looked at this very deeply over the years, is that get people to realize that maybe there was nothing wrong with them in the first place. Maybe it's okay to be entirely uncomfortable in this uncomfortable world. Maybe it's okay to be afraid. Maybe it's okay to be nervous. Maybe it's okay to be very sad or regretful or resentful. Or maybe it's okay to just be human and have the whole smorgasbord, the whole potpourri of the human experience be part of what we're dealing with. And maybe there's nothing wrong with you for feeling uncomfortable in this world, for being you know, very um, out of balance. The world is crazy, if you haven't noticed. It's, there's a lot of hurdles. There's a lot of obstacles and a lot of challenges. And anyone who pretends that they're well-equipped to manage all of this is simply not telling the truth. So when we get the idea that it's okay to be really uncomfortable and that, you know, striving for comfort is, this is the seduction of comfort. People believe that in order to be healthy, they should be comfortable all day. And this is what mental health promotes. But there's nothing like that. The people are not comfortable all day. I don't know about you, Roy, but it's only 7.15 in the morning here right now. And I've been uncomfortable several times already today. I mean, that's how this is goes. You know, it's not like it's easy to stay on top of this whole thing. And we could give ourselves some forgiveness and some acceptance and some compassion for the deep challenges that it takes to be a human in this ever-challenging society. Brilliant. And with the kind of mental uh, health asylums and like if we look at because sometimes there's thoughts that there's something wrong with somebody right if we look at narcissists if we look at parents like when we take back a few layers it's not always the patient is the problem it's true and unfortunately just from what i've seen and kind of heard a lot obviously you're different when you do it, but a lot of times they just sedate them when they go into these institutions and they don't actually have a system for kind of helping them to kind of return to society. Have you ever seen a system that works or what's the kind of solution to this? Well, you use, you're kind enough to use the word ever, which I totally appreciate. Oh, very rarely is there a system that works. In the organized psychiatric system inside of like, you know, the institutions and in regular um, outpatient care, the therapies and the medications, it's very rare that a system works to actually get someone way better. 
Now, I want to make a disclaimer here right at this moment, Roy, because it's important. There are some listeners of your show who are very happy with their present diagnosis and very happy with their therapist or their doctor and very happy with the medicines that they're on and feel like it's saving their lives and keeping them steady and has, you know, changed their lives for the better. And for those people who are listening who believe that, please stay the course. If you have found something that has worked in your life, please continue to do it. Please, please understand that I'm not asking you to change away from something that's actually working. It's very important that those listeners who are happy with the way things are going continue to do what they're doing, okay, and really understand that. But what I am speaking to is the hundreds of millions of people who don't believe that, who are pretty sure that they've been misdiagnosed or undiagnosed, you know, underdiagnosed, or um, you know, have too many diagnoses. There's many people with that because you get, often get a different diagnosis as, as depending on how many clinicians you visit. You know, when you have a broken arm, you don't go to a different doctor who tells you you got a broken leg. You got, you got a broken arm. That's what you have. You have a broken arm. And if you go to a doctor, he's going to tell you you have a broken arm. Another piece is if you have a broken arm here in California and you go to the UK, it's still a broken arm. If you go to Singapore, it's still a broken arm. If you go to Thailand, it's still a broken arm. That's not true with mental health and mental illness. If you present the way you present in California and then you go to Reykjavik, you may be seen as an entirely different person. You may not be seen as someone who's even mentally ill. Or if you go to Rwanda, they may consider you a shaman. They may give you extra special treatment. You know, if it's really interesting how it's all culturally determined and uh, dependent in many ways. Uh, this whole idea of mental illness has a very fluid definition. And because it has such a fluid, nebulous definition, one could easily make the conclusion that there is no definition of mental illness because it shifts so drastically depending on where and what is going on in the circumstances. And if that's the case, it's very ripe right now for a transformation in the narrative that defines mental illness and mental health. And today is a great day to make that transformation in the narrative because there's so many new things coming down the pike that are changing humanity fundamentally. For instance, psychedelics are very much changing the way that we look at you know, how life unfolds for us and what the different dimensions are and you know, how, to, how to be a great human and what it really means to be a healthy human. A lot of these things are not, in, you know, not embedded in the old medical model of what it means to be psychiatrically healthy. And another thing that's coming down the pike that's even bigger, I think, than psychedelics is AI, because AI is creating an opportunity for us to see that we're the second smartest creatures on this world. And we haven't, as humanity, haven't had an opportunity before to be able to hit one button and access all the knowledge that's ever been gathered in the history of mankind in order for us to be able to address anything. And, and then all the magic that, you know, that AI is about to unfold for us, not, on, not to mention the stuff that's already unfolded in the form of you know, chat GPT and the large language models. The interface between AI and mental health and the interface between psychedelics and mental health make it especially ripe for a transformation of the narrative at a foundational fundamental level. And like, because I've kind of touched on AI a few times and I definitely think it's fantastic, but there's also times where it'll tell you the wrong thing and we have to be very careful with it because people... It's like they're listening to the news, they hear the news and they believe it because it's said or they'll hear some politician or their leader saying something and that's gospel and are typing into Google. And it's the same with AI. So we have to be very cautious of uh, how we approach this. Right. It's not like it's the ultimate um, knowledge ba uh, basin. It's not like we can count on AI to always deliver the correct answer. But you can count on AI to deliver an answer. It will always have an answer. And it's it's a very, very, very remarkable, you know, paradigm shifting tool that's unfolding in front of our very eyes. And it's going to be part of all of our worlds. Uh, anyone who thinks right now that they're going to be able to sidestep AI in their life is actually missing the point. There's no sidestepping this stuff. It's here already. And we're already being affected by it in many, many different ways, not only just in the entertainment world, you know, that you can create really cool videos or cool pictures or cool, you know, cool spreadsheets and all that. You can have it create good blogs and good posts and all that. But it's not only there in the very serious world, it's affecting things because it has all the knowledge of the world combined 
right at its fingertips and it's available to you in seconds and if you uh just ask at the right prompt and it's uh it's a re very 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 remarkable tool in many different levels if we kind of take <laughs> that to the next level and i mean like irrespective of people's belief system of the like the world health organization but if you just kind of see who's running it and everything in reality if there was one created by proper people that really cared and used the ai because i have seen so many times where someone has an ailment and even if it's from myself and i'll start researching and i go this actually worked immediately and if we had that combined and then had the likes to say yourself kind of validating something you know and that there's a list proving yeah we confirm with that so it's not a case of something's being searched and trawled and it's it's going to be detrimental to your health but that way then you're going to be kind of improving humanity and the health of people well you bring up a great point here i had a conversation with a mentor of mine last night for dinner and we talked a little bit about what you just said and he has a point that he thinks the best way to manage AI is to actually leave some of its power on the table. Don't utilize it for everything that it brings. In other words, be, you know, be um, modest about how we use AI. Like let, we can see the power of it, all the many places at the edge of the mountain, at the edge of the terrain that it might be able to affect, but to be very careful and cautious about only utilizing it when necessary is another way to keep it sane. But you're bringing up a different idea, which is if good people are able to manage AI, it could change the world in a remarkably positive direction, for sure, if we were actually doing this to advance the human race. But we both know, as do all of humanity, that the, the planet is made not made up of only good people. And there's nefarious people out there who are out there at, you know, trying to make a negative difference. And really affect humanity in a very negative way. And it's very unfortunate because AI has the power to do that as well. And everything that's ever been introduced to the world at a power level, including fire, you know, all the way back to fire, let alone um, atomic energy or some of the other things that this often gets compared to, always has a, a superb uh, shadow or other side to it that can put an end to the world just as much as it can move the world forward in you know, leaps and bounds. You know, you've you've worked with homeless as well. And I see like especially in America, it's kind of unbelievable when you when you see videos of people. But even in Ireland, it no last times I was back, the amount of people that are made homeless. And if we look at kind of the whole chain reaction, because there's a lot of people going, how we help the homeless, and they don't take back the layers of actually who caused it a lot of the times it's the city throwing them out and everything but actually when you're dealing with the homeless and their mindset and everything because unfortunately some people they don't have the compassion for them they're just looking at them where they are now not the journey that made them where they're being and just with you dealing with them if you could kind of take us through some of the ways that people might kind of look at it differently yeah, I appreciate this question very much. So when I came out of medical school, I worked in the homeless shelter in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was the first psychiatrist to go in there as a psychiatrist and actually get to meet these people downright. You know, they knew that I was someone who loved conversation and uh, communication and connection, and they put me in the homeless shelter so that I could do that with the people who live there. And I've always had a special uh, affection for the homeless. In fact, there, I wrote a, an award-winning article called The Global Madness, What We Must Do to Unite. And it starts off, the whole first half of that article is about homelessness. And the idea here is that um, you know, homelessness is not a mental illness by any stretch. It's a process that one lands on when they lose their home. That's, you know, they're going through life and they're tripping through life just like all of us, you know, bumbling through life, thinking that they know something or they don't know something, taking on jobs or not taking on jobs, taking on responsibilities or not taking on responsibilities, taking on relationships or not taking on relationships. And they find themselves eventually without, often without employment, without a revenue stream, and now without a home. And now they live on the streets. And that's how that goes. And there is a whole culture that lives on the streets that take care of each other. You know, it's a different culture than what we're aware of here in on we'll say this side of the of the screen where most most of the people that we're having podcasts with most of the people who have computers are not homeless um 
But we start seeing that, you know, this is not a necessarily a dangerous group of people. It's not necessarily a group of people that is very different, in fact, from me or you. These are people who know and often care a lot about other humans. And frankly, I have been very impressed recently. Um, I have a few different homeless clients who are uh, at the time homeless, who are, you know, kind of walking the streets, going from one place to another, or living in little tent communities. Um, and there is a a love for each other. You know, there is a protection for each other, a familial understanding oftentimes of the neighborhood. Now, it's not always that way. I'm not saying that it's, you know, that it's a, a, a utopia by any stretch, but I am saying that there is a protection. There's a self-protection and a togetherness, a unification. And maybe we could say even a human connection that's helping them stay healed. Like they... Uh, your next door neighbor is part, you got their back. Usually when you're homeless, the person who lives right next to you, you got their back. You're going to make sure that nothing bad happens to them. And there's just an understanding that way that can be seen as very beautiful. Now we look at these people and because they haven't taken a shower, or maybe they're looking a little scraggly or their clothes aren't clean, or they have a buggy with their stuff in it, or they live in a tent, or you know they look might, like they might be dirty or something like that we think less of those people than we do of the people who are living in actual homes. But we're wrong to do that. I think you're pointing to that way. Basically, these are just humans who have found themselves in, diff in different circumstances that we think are less effective than the ones that were in a home. You could make a strong case that having a life like we have a civilized life is even more imprisoning than living in the homeless situation that we have, you know, we're always afraid that if we do X, Y, or Z, we might lose what we have and then, you know, have to face homelessness. The homeless people, they don't get to, they're not afraid of that. They're, they're already homeless. So they're not going to lose their homelessness. They're not going to do it wrong and then lose their homelessness. So there is, a, in some ways, a freedom to be more self-expressed in some ways in the homeless culture than you could see in the civilized, you know, above, in the civilized home, we'll call it people with homes culture. And like, it's not something that I agree with. I see a lot of kind of so-called influencers, a lot of they decide to call themselves where they're recording giving them something and it's more just to get the fame i know some of them are doing it to get the donations which in turn helps so there's kind of pros and cons for it but what i have seen is that going back to what you just said there was times where they'd give somebody money and they just check what they do with it thinking they'll go away and go drinking and everything and what they do is they went to bed and got food and started feeding all the other homeless people and exactly when you see something like that that touches you it, it's really something you're right you're and that's what i'm talking about there is a there is a family connection there is a tribal connection oftentimes and that's exactly what they do we're we have this rhetoric that if we give them three dollars they're going to buy a bottle of wine and not you know not actually do anything healthy for themselves but it's very possible that what they're going to do is something just like you described is you know buy some food and actually feed the entire neighborhood so with you've uh, worked in with prisoners as well and i mean i like i've i've actually seen some of the shows and i know that the, depending like around the world what way it's done some people they kind of try to get them back in other places it's just they keep going you know they don't get out what's like your approach i mean they don't put meditation and things like that not always but from what you've seen cuz i i i think tarring somebody with the brush you know, that you kind of go, you're a prisoner, you're bad for life and not having forgiveness. And also same thing, not knowing their journey, because a lot of them were abused and they just they're coming from a place of hurt, which in turn, how can I survive in life? I start beating people up and they get caught and depending on their crime. But still, we still have to have forgiveness for them. And I just with, with your experience with prisoners. Yeah, I have worked in some maximum security prisons here in California. And uh, you're saying a couple of things that are really near and dear to my heart. Number one, uh, the people who get in prison, oftentimes you may not even have done the crime that gets them in prison. So, you know, I, there's some really sad stories that come out of the prison, you know, where someone was pulled over by the police who have had a vendetta against them for years and they find a jackknife or something in the, in the glove box. And then they hit them up for, you know, being 
uh, possession of a deadly weapon or something, you know, like that. And, and then all of a sudden, boom, boom, boom. They got no defense. They got no attorney. They got no real way of keeping themselves out of the way. And, you know, they've been maybe institutionalized one or two times already and boom, they're in the prison. And then they are in the prison. They end up getting in a fight with somebody trying to protect themselves or defend themselves and their prison term gets extended. And before too long, what was a prison term maybe going to be a few weeks or a month or two, all of a sudden it's a year or, you know, extended more than a year. Um, and these people end up living in a prison because that becomes their community. One of the things I noticed in a prison, and I think you might really relate to this, is the, the most interesting people in a prison by far are the prisoners. By far, by far. This is a non-pretentious group of people who are just being pure, genuine, and, and honest and authentic in many cases. Their ability to maintain eye contact, their ability to have honest, honest to goodness human um, conversation is extraordinary. And they don't lie. They don't have to lie. They have nothing to lose, especially the people who are there, um, you know, for a very long term or for life or multiple life sentences. These people, you know, they're the, the conversations I've had with them and the especially what you can see through their eyes. So there's something spectacular about the eyes of somebody who is in the prison for a life or multiple life sentence. There is a freshness and a purity that comes through with these people that you, one would be shocked about if they didn't expect it. I know I was shocked as well. Like seeing these people and having conversations, I really felt a deep connection at the core level as being with another human. That's not to be said by the, let's say the correction officers or the social workers or the doctors or psychologists in the, in the same prison. Those people are often really hard to deal with. And sometimes they're lying every single day. They're saying things about the prisoner that not even true in order to perpetuate the, this length of stay or to keep them in their solitary confinement or to keep them in whatever, you know, whatever level they're in. So they have to chart things that sometimes are not the truth. They're not exactly what's so. And, you know, they're saying things about a, a client who they're afraid of maybe saying that they're um, potentially violent or something when they haven't been violent for months or years. And, you know, say they're making uh, statements about themselves and they're walking a very thick walk. In, uh, in other words, a very viscous uh, existence, meaning they sort of have to make things up in order to get themselves a purpose in life. And this is often true with the CEOs and the social workers in the prison system where lying or at least bending the truth about the prisoners when reporting about them is a standard affair. It's what frequently goes on in the prisons here in the US and I imagine that might probably true in, in, in Europe as well in order to keep their jobs going. There's, you know, for instance, at the prisoners, at the prisons that I've worked in, there were more employees hired at the prison than actual prisoners. Like it was more than one to one, you know, there was, there was some several thousand prisoners, but there was more people working there than actual prisoners. How could that be? What is that all about? That's just a crazy use of finances and revenue streams and a crazy use. You have to imagine that there's deep corruption at the bottom of that. And that's what I found inside the prisons is unfortunately there's deep corruption that often runs those prisons and it's very unfortunate because what they don't want you to do is actually speak the truth. When you speak the truth in that setting, you're an outlier and you can get, you know, you put yourself in a dangerous situation. Again, talking a little bit to the people that you've had on this show, there's a number of them who do their very best to speak the truth and, uh, you know, do it against the grain. They speak the truth, even though it might be dangerous to actually say what's so. Uh, like one of the last guests, Bibi Bacchus, like she was a real estate and she got nearly eight years, seven years and two months, something like that, fraudulently, because she was trying to help the poor get houses. They weren't given the grants. And I know somebody else as well. And like she's talking about that, the actual amount of money, it's all down to trusts and like you're you're worked you know the straw man and things like that so that's why they do it that's why they keep people inside in jail and they have no rights and you know it's a shame how it's done but like i think when we have compassion and look at systems that are working to be replicating them because like if we look at all the countries around 
you know, like say the education system in Finland, that's a lot better than most of the others. And every country has something that's working brilliant, but they tend to all just do their own thing. And uh, when we start combining the stuff and go, let's copy the top three countries that are doing this, let's copy the instead of the other way around, they're just letting people off and their own. And the same in the prison systems and and dealing with homelessness because even with going back to the homelessness like i said once you give them dignity because they were like even providing small houses that's 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 what they're taking away from their dignity most of them Mm -hmm. they will try to get back into society they try they actually want to do some work and things like that and one of the other ones i want to touch i know is uh, you've worked with uh, orphanages and that's something that scares me because like I've just heard of so much of the abuse that goes on with that because like prisoners, they don't really have a, a say and their rule. And it's a lot worse for orphanages because one, they don't have a parent or maybe, you know, that it's just, but unfortunately there's a lot of abuse going on there. So perhaps you can kind of share some light on that one. Right. It's been a little while since I've worked with a, with an actual orphanages, but I, uh, an actual orphanage, but I have worked with them before. And one of the, you bring up a very good point. The voice of the orphans isn't heard at the same level. These are kids generally. So they can't really make, they can't really protest or say what's going on behind those closed doors. And, you know, we have recent uh, filming um, with the movie, et cetera, uh, you know, the freedom movie. Yeah. Yeah where we start looking at the, how kids are being um, trafficked and, and it's easy to put a connection or just to imagine a connection between the orphans that end up in orphanages and the orphans that end up in trafficking situations. And, you know, again, we're going back to some very evil adults occasionally, like there's some very evil adults out here who are willing to exploit other human beings, no matter what age they are. And, you know, you can work it, there is a bimodal tendency. There are people who work in orphanages or work in prisons or work with the homeless who are great, who are just fantastic people, just doing fantastic things to help people and to move humanity forward. And then there are also people in those uh, same industries that are not great, that are kind of bad people or evil people who are making a difference in a negative direction, who are actually hurting people and sometimes, you know, intentionally even, or... um actually moving humanity in a negative direction and you often see that when you're working in these facilities there are some people who it's a better day when they don't come to work it's a better day in the facility if they don't come to work and then there's other people that you just wish they would be there 24 7 because they're making such a positive difference with all the people and you know orphanages is a great place to point to because like i said the voice of the residents the voice of the orphans isn't often heard because we downplay what they have to say. And you, you know, you're, you're really speaking to a group of disenfranchised people. When you're speaking to prisoners and the homeless and orphans, you're speaking to people who don't really have access to their true voice inside of the world. And they can speak their true voice, but we out here tend to diminish the impact of what they have to say, because we have prejudged them to be less than average human. And with the abuse, because, you know, I've had uh, like detectives on talking about this and it it was something that I kind of didn't want to go through. And then a friend said, yeah, if you're turning away from it, it's like you're kind of accepting it's happening. And then I kind of acknowledge it because it is it is hard. And sometimes I do some investigation and I will cry from just hearing the stories because they're so horrific. But what is going on in the world is a lot of the time the detectives, the judges high-ranking politicians in the UK, they've been caught, they know about it, but they get off. And I've even heard of people that have reported about the satanic abuse and stuff like that, and they basically get put in an asylum or locked up forever just to keep them quiet. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of million-dollar question because I've also seen that how this whole, I don't know, like, do you call them these kind of elite groups that they bring them in at an early stage. I've heard that they even torture the baby in the belly. So are they taking away their empathy, their emotions, so that they will comply and then they become the leaders of the country? Should we have compassion for them? Or is it a case of we hang them from the tree? I know it's a hard one. That's a really great question. And I really appreciate it. Look, 
This is humanity. This is it. This is it today, right now. This is it. This is what we got. This is the reality. This is what we have. And whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, true or false, is almost irrelevant. This is just what we have. These are humans. Those are humans. These are the evil people. They're humans. I am going to, to go out on a limb, uh, you know, pardon the pun there. I'm going to go out on a limb as far as uh, hanging them from a tree and let you know that what we're really talking about here are other human beings who want nothing more than to be heard. They really want nothing more than to be heard. Now, they've got very odd and sometimes extremely dangerous, barbaric ways of producing their environment to get themselves heard, what they think is right, you know? And I'm not saying we should have, like, be, you know, wondrously beautiful to these incredibly evil people. But there can be an understanding that that's just another super dark way to look at humanity. And they, are, they have taken that position inside of the, this course of, you know, a lifetime where we get to see that whole smorgasbord, the whole potpourri again, the whole welcome to humanity look at all the super evil, the super barbaric, the super heinous, the super unspeakable actions that humans are willing to do with each other or to themselves or with the environment and incorporate that in, you know, can we utilize the satanic aspect of it to move ourselves forward? Can we actually incorporate this and exceed that these are little parts of us? You know, we are those people. We are humans too. There are parts of us that are in all these people who are creating this massive damage. Can we incorporate that and have us become even better, stronger, greater people as a function of being around or knowing about people who are doing these in really just incredibly torturous, um, unacceptable crimes to other human beings? It's a funny question. I sometimes say, you know, we got to welcome to humanity. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. And then people say, well, what about Charles Manson? Or what about Jeffrey Dahmer? Or what about like these guys that you're talking about here? How can I say there's nothing wrong with them? And all I can tell you is it's just another form of humanity. And I'm not here to judge other humans. I'm just not. I mean, that's not why I was put on the earth. That's not my position. I'm put on the earth to negotiate a life that actually works for my loved ones for the, and to make a difference in the world and in areas that really matter to me. I'm not put on my life to decide whether or not we should kill somebody or hang them from a tree. I, you know, people who are doing that stuff, of course, my heart says, put an end to their life. You know, of course, like they don't belong here. Like that's too much damage. That's unacceptable. And they should be punished at the highest level of the law. And then there's another part of me that says, well, maybe not. Maybe what they really need more than anything is someone to really listen to what is it that's in their, their heart? What is it that they really want to say? What is it that they really want to do with life? Even if they're on the absolute wrong side of the, of the aisle in how they think about things. Again, looking again at the group of people that they, they, I've already mentioned that you've had on the show. If you look at Willis and Ike and Tenpenny and all these people, they're fighting a big fight. They're fighting a huge fight against a group of people that are thinking entire differently, entirely different than they think. And they're making their statements, right? And um, you know, what should they do with these other people? What should they do with people on the other side? I know I've heard some people say that the right attitude is to take into consideration the concerns of all relevant parties. At least take into consideration the concerns of all relevant parties, meaning at least be able to listen, keep our ears open for what is the noise that they're trying to make about what their stand is. What are they really saying so that we can understand and at least connect at that level, at least be able to listen uh, to some degree. That doesn't mean that we condone or agree with what they're up to, but it can be go a long ways to listen. We can learn about ourselves and about them and all about humanity by opening our ears and at least listening. I hope I didn't sidestep that question too much. No, I don't, was, you know. It was excellent. excellent. And like you mentioned Manson, because you know, I've read a, a book recently and like, and that was the FBI or the CIA, like that looks like an MK Ultra thing. So, he was constantly getting taken out of prison. So this was orchestrated. So 
like even though you'd look at him and I mean I've seen some of the interviews and obviously he wasn't stable mentally you could see that there was something seriously wrong but was that pushed on him and if I look at say like say if we look at the cities and graffiti and things like that I've heard that when they stop someone like not letting them off for doing breaking windows or painting graffiti that they call them out on their petty crimes and make them maybe if we as a society when we see somebody abusing somebody on social media we cut we don't allow it and is it that we're all responsible that sometimes we just turn away because i've noticed that like if you see somebody really abusing some a child in a shopping center when you know they're really are giving them such a belt that even an adult would probably be knocked out we tend to kind of go no this isn't my problem i don't want to get involved is it that we're allowing this to happen by actually not facing up to it if we can all have an input that when we know what is right because most of us know what's right and wrong but not to just think it's someone else's problem well it's a great question again and i'm going to point to a kind con- the conversation i had with my mentor last night that i told you about at dinner we also talked about this we had, apparently had a pretty powerful conversation And what he said is uh, really important, which is it's not the people who are doing wrong that are creating a badness in the world. It's the people who aren't saying anything. It's the people who aren't standing up. That's the ones who are really contributing to the evil of the satanic aspect of the world. That's the ones who are really making the world a worse place. It's the people who see when damage is being done and aren't speaking up. They're not saying anything. They're not stepping in when they know something is right. It's not so much the people who are doing the wrong, it's the people that aren't speaking up against the wrong that are doing even more damage than the people who are doing the wrong. So are we letting them get away with it? Yes, we are. Are we afraid to step in because we're afraid of the impact we might make or the trouble we might get into or we might be you know, seen as um, uh, outcasts or whistleblowers or those kinds of things? Uh, you know, are, are we will lose our position in society if we say X or Y or Z happened, or if we, you know, point to somebody of uh, high stature who's doing something that is unacceptable, you know, we would, or even someone of an average stature doing something unacceptable. Um, you know, we were worried about the impact we're going to make if we actually call people out. And oftentimes, I know I'm guilty of this. I assume it's, it sounds like you are too. Sometimes I see things in the street or I see things at the shopping center and I know I should just step in and, and say, hey, you can't do that. You know, don't do that to your child or don't do that uh, to that person. Like, please, you know, you're 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 not being right. You know, you're not being kind or you're not being compassionate. You're not you know, you're not being a human friend or a brother or sister. Um, and I don't do it. I turn away and I keep walking and hope and get to this idea like, hey, that's not my problem. When in fact, uh, probably the more righteous way to look at this and the more honest and real way to look at it, say, yes, it is. It's my problem because this is my family. My family is 7.8 billion people deep and it's called humanity. And like, I know you talk about like, uh, like the power of the voice and communication and everything. And I think... Like, I just know from myself that in the last maybe five years or whatever, that I don't hold back, you know, even if it's a judge or whatever, whoever I'm dealing with, I just, I try to, not in a case like this supermarket now that we mentioned, but basically where people think, don't say that, you might offend somebody or something like that. But I, I found the more that I'm just totally honest and open, that it works a hundred times better and you feel a hundred times better rather than, like society now is like tiptoeing. Oh, I don't want to offend them, you know, with all the gender stuff. Oh, I'm afraid I'll offend them. I can't do this. Don't write that. And that's why it's happening is because the people that need to actually step up or just call it as it is are kind of going hmm. and, you know, exactly. exactly. It is why it's happening. And, you know, I know, so I'm a doctor and I didn't speak up very much as I might, as I would have liked to in the early part of the pandemic and how I felt about things. And, you know, doctors were a very quiet, extremely quiet during the entire band- pandemic about how they kind of just floated through the whole thing and let the whole pandemic just unfold the way it did. And there wasn't that many doctors who actually spoke up about how they really thought about the about the virus itself or about the uh, masking or about the uh, social distancing or about, you know, the the, um, vaccinations or any of that. Uh, 
And um, I found myself, you know, biting my tongue because I didn't want to find myself outside of the norm. I want, I did, you know, I was afraid for my own self as well. Now, what I ended up doing is uh, really speaking to the importance of what we're speaking of today, meaning in the United States, I'm not sure what it is in, in UK, but in the United States, the First Amendment, you know, the freedom of speech is what's really important. And I became a real advocate for people to be able to speak their truest voice. Like that's what's really important more than anything is that we have to sustain in all of our societies the capacity to speak our true voice. We have to. Without our true voice, no one will ever, ever hear us. No one will ever know us. You know, if you can't speak your true voice, then no one will ever know you. And I think it was Henry David Thoreau who said that the mass of men go through life in quiet desperation and then go to their grave with their songs still in them. And that's what we have to be concerned about here is that once we start to be quiet, once we start to hold our tongue, once we start to not speak our truth, or even worse, once we start to pretend to be people that we are not in order to protect the people that we are, then we've gone down a very deep rabbit hole and it's going to be very difficult to pull out of that and find any kind of authentic core message that can resonate with the healing of humanity. Beautiful, beautiful. Listen, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I know I need to get you back again because I want to read your books and go deeper into them, but uh, you might let people know how how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, thank you for having me. It really was a beautiful conversation. Um, I think the my favorite place to send people is to my 360 site. It's drfred, drfred360.com. And you can see all the things that I'm currently up to in there. There's some freebies in there. There's some downloads in there. There's some uh, of my eBooks are in there. You can get a PDF of both my books in there and some copies of this podcast will be in there shortly. And, um, uh, some recent podcasts and some um, lead magnets, et cetera. So drfred360.com. But if you want to get a hold of me directly, there's a contact button in that site as well. But you can you can email me at drfred at welcometohumanity.net. Drfred at welcometohumanity.net. And then you can find me on social media, of course. I don't like hanging out on Facebook, but I somehow find myself there nearly every day. And um, I, I'd rather hang out on LinkedIn um, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't generate the same kind of interest that some of the others do. It's just, it's an in different place, but those are my two sites, pretty much, um, uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. And we're building a YouTube site at this point as well with all my podcasts. Perfect. I'll make sure I put all the links, both on the audio and the video. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Beautiful. Great so, job. No problem. So that's all for the awakening podcast. You'll find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. Until next week, take care. So I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. You'll find everything about me on bio.link forward slash podcaster with all my podcasts and you'll find it you see in the QR code in the graphic that's shown. I'd like again to thank my sponsors. So if you or someone you know struggling with anxiety and want to know how to be 100% anxiety free six weeks without therapy or drugs, Daniel Packard's Anxiety Solution Program company offers a six-week system that permanently solves anxiety at an astounding 90% success rate. People who join the program only pay at the end once they have clear, measurable results. If you're interested in learning more, go to permanentanxietysolutions.com where you can book a free consultation with Daniel. Do you fight blood pressure and or want to get off the meds? Doctors are amazed at what Zona Plus can do. You can get a $50 discount with my code Roy, zona.com slash discount slash Roy. And you'll see it in the QR code as well as Daniel's QR code. Quality manufacturer of metal products for telecommunication and workshop equipment and other metal materials. You see the brochure there in the QR code. And let me know if you would like a quotation shipped internationally at very competitive price. I'd like to thank all my sponsors and also all my listeners. Be sure to give me a thumbs up. Five star rating, share with your friends. Really helps. And I also have a video on how to give a five star rating because a lot of people have wrote to me asking me that they don't know how to do that. Until next week, take care.